From Revenue Rhino, I'm Brad Hammond, and this is the Lifelong Customer Podcast. We're interviewing successful sales and marketing leaders and discussing ways in which they're building lifelong relationships with their customers. I'm your host, Brad Hammond, and today I have Dylan Fly of Simon Data. Dylan, it's really great to have you on. Thanks, Brad. Good to be here. Yeah. So tell me a bit about yourself, Dylan. So I have been in the marketing technology space about seven years now. I've been at Simon Data for about three and a half years. Our company is about four and a half years old. So joined as the 10th employee, the first sales hire, and have really seen uh, the company grow from Series A pre-product market fit to where we are today, a large sales team, rapid uh, growing company, winning market share in a crowded market. So it's been a really exciting time. I've I've led the sales team for the time that I've been there. And we have uh, a lot to talk about in terms of what's ahead for the business. I guess a little bit more about my background. I started my career in investment banking. It was an interesting experience, learned a lot. I think the most important thing I learned is that I don't want to be an investment banker. I guess even before that, I started in, in venture actually overseas in Vietnam. I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to college. And one of the things that the scholarship emphasized was to do something overseas that was service-based your sophomore summer in college. So I, I chose to go to Vietnam, which you know is an emer- rapidly emerging market at the time was especially, and wanted to do something that had a service component, but also really taught me about, at the time I was just really interested in, in startups and business and was able to spend time at a, a venture firm there where basically the first couple of weeks I was there, I was sitting in this like stuffy office in the air conditioning. And every day I was commuting to and from work on the back of a motorbike with somebody who didn't speak any English. And it was one of those experiences where I was just like, I feel like I'm not actually getting out of this what I wanted to. So I was, look, let me work for one of your seed companies. Let me go meet with the, the CEO of one of these startups. And maybe there's something I can do to add value for them. So I left the uh, air conditioned office went down to this university campus, which was very much like a Soviet-style building. Vietnam is still a communist country, so very sort of utilitarian architecture, no air conditioning. Actually, they give you a schedule at the beginning of the day as to when the internet is going to turn off because the demand is greater than the supply, and they schedule when the internet's going to go out. At 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. today, I won't have internet. And so I worked on establishing a venture accelerator across the 64 provinces of, of, of Vietnam, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation had invested significantly in establishing internet connectivity for the whole country about two years before I got there. So it was just a great opportunity for us to take the investments in internet infrastructure and help primarily rural entrepreneurs start their business and get access to to education. That's really what we were focused on was, was ed tech, right? Now that they had access to the internet, how do we help you know people in these rural areas get access to education? And so that was actually really my first career experience. And it's something that, that sort of for me was, was a great way to get into startups, a, a crash course, so to speak, in the sense that I was still riding around on the back of motorbikes with people who didn't speak English to all these rural areas and that sort of thing. But, and then after my time in banking, I, I did some time in consulting, which I actually you know, really enjoyed, found very interesting. It was great to look at many different businesses and industries from the outside in and, and get that exposure but ultimately led me back to startups. I knew that I always wanted to be in startups at the early stage. 
interviewed for probably 25 to 50 companies. Gosh, it was, you know, a long time ago at this point, but interviewed every possible place when I was thinking about going back into startups out of consulting, didn't really know what I wanted to do, looked at SaaS companies, looked at D2C companies, looked at operations roles, looked at finance roles and that sort of thing. And ultimately ended up going in for a strategy and operations interview. And the person interviewing me, the the COO was like, have you thought about doing sales? Like this might be an interesting career choice for you. And I was like, not really. I, it's never really occurred to me that this would be a good fit. And he was like, sales is really the most important role in this business. Like it's not a role that reports into me, operations, the whole operations, like finance, all that reports into me. But I think this sales thing would be more interesting for you. And frankly, I think your skill set would be better utilized here. So I was like, sure, I'll give it a shot. And uh, yeah, now I've spent eight years of my career in sales. (laughs) So uh, they tricked me. (laughs) But I've never looked back. And yeah, that's that's where I am today. A little bit more about my background and and uh, and just very high level about Simon. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a very awesome background, and you know, brings a unique perspective of starting with entrepreneurship and then seeing all the different angles and aspects of the company. That's really cool. Yeah. So tell me a bit about what you're up to at Simon and what you guys do and the challenges that you're tackling in the market. Yeah. So we're in the marketing technology space. Within that, we're in the very crowded customer data platform category. There are now 180 different vendors that uh, call themselves customer data platforms. There is, there is very much as a go-to-market leader, this sort of challenge of differentiation and how to do that in two ways. There's obviously the sales process where you construct a process that that ultimately helps intake and understand client pain and map that to areas where you feel uniquely differentiated. But of course, the broader marketing thought leadership challenge around how you educate the market uh, on what to buy and how to think about a noisy category. So there, we've definitely encountered lots of learnings on both sides of the coin in terms of operating in this market. I think broadly and more fundamentally, the problem that we solve is the marketing technology space has primarily grown over the past decade through you know, acquisition, right? And through proliferation of many different technologies that are designed to fill gaps in terms of what businesses want to be able to accomplish for their customers. And there's just been a ton of venture money really thrown at this space, which has given rise to, I think, 8,000, 9,000 different marketing technology companies over, over the past decade as well. So there's two things happening, right? There's the, the largest players, Salesforce, Oracle, Adobe, are acquiring companies, amalgamating capabilities in and around their sort of core central workflow position as being the thing that powers marketing for enterprise. And then you have lots of other companies that either solve very small problems or purport to solve slightly wider problems, but ultimately really create a lot of challenges for our target buyer in navigating the space, understanding what they should be buying, understanding how they should be thinking about it. So for all those reasons, it's just been a really interesting time to be at Simon. Where our product uh, fits is we're a platform that helps businesses better leverage all of their data to better understand and then communicate with their customers. And really the gap that we see in the market is systems that are good at helping marketers orchestrate customer experiences are really data impoverished. And it's not even really that they don't you know, have access to all data. They just don't understand. I think teams generally don't understand what data is useful. 
there's just a tremendous amount of noise. And yet every team wants to be much more data driven in the way that they do things. And then on, on the data side, there are many technologies that help you better organize your customer data, create single customer views, leverage different types of data in different latencies and different contexts. But the way that they connect downstream with the systems that you use to market to your customers really creates this gap for business users, for marketers, for analysts, for data scientists to actually be able to do what they want to be able to do in personalizing their marketing campaigns and thinking about how their customer journey should look, getting insights on which customers to market to when and that sort of thing. And when you look at the traditional enterprise sales process, you have marketers who are used to buying a specific type of thing. You have IT teams that are used to buying a specific type of thing. And those teams usually don't see eye to eye. So for us to be successful, we have to generate, we have to galvanize buy-in across two different stakeholder groups that generally don't really work super well together. And we have to create a really compelling value proposition for the intersection of, of these two sets of capabilities. And I think what we've learned over the years is for certain types of companies, it's a very straightforward, value-driven type of conversation. And then for the mass market, I think there's a lot of challenges navigating the buying process and consulting clients on how to buy something that looks like Simon. At the same time, though, companies growing very quickly, teams growing very quickly, lots of, lots of exciting things ahead for us. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like 2020 has been obviously a crazy year, but it sounds like despite that, you guys are really doing well and growing. Has it? I didn't. Was 20, what happened in 2020? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not some just minor stuff. <laughs> yeah. so, what what sort of shifts or changes in the market have you seen this year? Has there been any impact to your customers and to the, the types of data <laughs> and things? And what does all that look like? Not not a bit. No, I would say for so we sell primarily to retailers, e-commerce businesses, travel and hospitality businesses, financial services companies. And then there's a long tail of other verticals that comprise about 10% of our business. Overall, certain areas have been majorly impacted negatively. Some businesses have been majorly impacted positively, and some businesses have largely not been impacted. But you could go vertical by vertical and identify what disruption is going to look like for specific spaces. Travel and hospitality, obviously massively negatively impacted overall. Look at retail and e-commerce. Companies that are pure play e-com, D2C have done very well. Companies that are primarily retail with a small D2C component have been majorly disrupted. Grocery specifically and pharmacy businesses are adapting to a new way of doing business and yet still doing business, still doing the same, still doing very well as businesses. And then you look at businesses like telehealth, subscription media and, and streaming and those types of things massively expanded over the, the course of 2020. I think the one common denominator, and this term new normal has been thrown around so much, I certainly hope this is not a new normal, and I don't love the term, but I do think that the common denominator among all these businesses is really just a different way of, of working and a different way of, of, for us, communicating with their customers, which is what we impact, right? The types of data that they're using and that sort of thing. I'll go back to the grocery example, right? This is a vertical where Traditionally, 90% of sales happen in store. Maybe there's 10% of people who buy online and pick up in store. Now it's flipped. So it's like 80-20, 50-50 in some contexts. But it's a business that used primarily loyalty data exclusively for since the dawn of data. Since the I mean, not the dawn of data, but the dawn of digital data, the dawn of the internet. And now has just like way more data than they know what to do with. And so helping companies think about how to be smarter about their digital strategy. 
But in general, and I think also for sales teams, we're just really different ways of doing things. For our business, we sell an enterprise solution. So our price points are in the seven-figure range, which means that we are meeting with clients face-to-face all the time. The ways that we generate sales opportunities are primarily in person. We go to conferences and events and host roundtables and that sort of thing. And so our way of doing business has been you know, significantly disrupted. If you asked me in January or February of, of 2020, 2020, if we were going to you know, be, if we were going to have any success with a webinar strategy, I would have said, you're insane. Usually company hosted webinars, you get like 10 people, eight of them are employees at yeah. your company and two of them are like competitors. <laughs> we've, <laughs> this year we've had 250 people you know, attend our, our webinars. So nice. when certain strategies stop working, others, you pivot and others start to, to fill the gaps. If you'd asked me also if we would be able to close seven-figure deals not meeting with our clients face-to-face or if we'd be able to hire senior salespeople not interviewing them face-to-face, I would have said, that's crazy. And yet here we are, right? Our business, we, we obviously don't have the luxury of, of not closing business or hiring people. So Hopefully. we've just adapted to a new way of doing things. And I think across the board, our clients have also done the same. It's what they've had to adapt to has been different depending on the vertical and the context, but it has obviously significantly upended our traditional ways of doing business. I guess one last point on this, I think you hear a lot of, you hear a lot of pundits talk about how this has accelerated the trends that we've been seeing over the past two decades, more in the two past two decades in one year right? It's accelerated more of those changes in the past year than it has in the past two decades. I'm thinking about Scott Galloway and those types of sort of economic thinkers, business school professors. And I agree. I think what we're seeing is a once in a lifetime shift in the way that consumers behave and businesses interact with their customers. And of course, that's a selfish lens to look at it because that's the business we're in. But depending on the the business you're in, I'm sure you're seeing the same sort of level of disruption and change in different ways. And it really occasions a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for businesses to innovate, think about new strategies. I think ultimately, also considering how available capital still is, it'll be a big opportunity for startups, right? It's rarely do you see something that massively negatively impacts the overall economy, changes the way businesses operate, and yet capital is still readily available. Interest rates are still effectively zero. Venture capital is still throwing money at, at startups. If you look at the IPO market this year, it's insane. Now you've got SPACs. You don't even need to go public to make a ton of money. You can just have some shell company buy your company. I think we are seeing simultaneously a ton of disruption and also a ton of availability of capital, which speaks to a lot of opportunities for startups coming out of the coming out of the pandemic and fingers crossed we're all vaccinated in in short order and we can go back to life as usual and small businesses can reopen and everybody we can relive the roaring 20s just the roaring 2020s yeah yeah totally so given your experience and background in entrepreneurship and startups and even seeing simon grow and being the catalyst for that growth what are ways in which you found to successfully build relationships with your target market with your customers cultivate those and make sales? Yeah, I think relative to possibly other people who you talk to on this podcast, I think one one perspective I can lend is the early stage perspective. I certainly don't sit in a position 
kind of managing a massive team that's well established where people come to us and we take orders. I, I'm not speaking from dozens of years of sales experience navigating large ships across large bodies of water. I think for us, in many cases, it feels a bit more like an odyssey where we're going from one island to the next. There's different characters to meet along the way. Sometimes you open a, a bag of wind and you go back to islands and sometimes there's dangerous minotaurs or whatever. And you get turned into, uh, I'm like really dating myself. You're trying to remember all the sort of classics analogies. <laughs> what is it? Polyphemus, the the uh, the one-eyed monster. I'm trying to remember <laughs> now all the, but so in some senses, that's the analogy that I make for, for what it's like in the early stages. I think that, so your question was really about establishing long-term relationships with your customers. That's absolutely critical as you think about starting a business or being an early stage startup or navigating an early stage go-to-market strategy. Your early customers are your customers who, have you read the book Crossing the Chasm? No, I haven't. It's a great book. I don't, it, have you not talked about it on the podcast? I'm trying to remember now who, who wrote it. Jeffrey Moore, I want to say. Yeah, Jeffrey Moore. It's a great book. So basically, it's there's a sort of standard distribution of companies. And really, the goal of any sort of long-term startup strategy is to migrate towards a world where you're selling into the middle of that standard distribution, because that's where the most companies are. That's where the largest budgets are. That's where you know the most money is. But ultimately, early on, you're, you're, you're working with a lot of brave clients, right? It's like the, the Oregon Trail video game. I don't know if you played that in elementary school or whatever, but you might get dysentery, right? So uh, your early clients really are the most critical in terms of providing feedback on your product that is useful as you continue to build it. It's like the minimum viable product strategy, right? They're also going to be a great source of lead referral as you continue to grow. There'll be great reference clients as you sign your 10th or 20th client, they're going to want to talk to references. And so they comprise that really early, early stage of very brave clients that are willing to work with you and, and your product and buy your vision, even if your product isn't fully formed yet. So they're helping you take your product and, and bring it to the mass market. And along the way, there's a different, I won't, I won't paraphrase the entire book, but <laughs> there's different phases sort of that you go through on your way to reaching the middle of the standard distribution curve. And my experience at Simon has been our early clients go on to run their own consulting shops that then refer us business. I've had some clients uh, that have been reference clients over 25 times. I've shelled out 25 bottles of whiskey or whatever it is for those folks. But those are really like the most critical relationships that, that you build and maintain. And ultimately, as you think about the long-term health of your business, it's, it really is going from that point where you have early stage clients that are really bought in on the vision and are willing to accept the challenges inherent in your product to a world where you can become more focused on the mass market. And really, that's the whole premise of the book is that crossing this chasm is, is actually very difficult because the feedback that you get from your early stage clients is going to be different from the feedback that you get when you reach mass market, the, the clients that are comfortable with, with not having every bell or whistle in your platform or in your product are going to give you different types of feedback on your product than the clients that need all of those different features. But I guess the thing that I can say and the lesson that I've learned is it really is an iterative process. And I think as we think about as a business more holistically establishing long-term relationships with our customers, certainly things like our client solutions function play a huge role, right? Being able to success clients using your platform make a huge difference early on when your platform doesn't have every you know bell or whistle. And ultimately, 
getting feedback from clients, the right types of clients, and being able to incorporate that into iterative product development are really critical. And it's really important. I know this podcast is focused on the roles of sales and marketing. And it's really important that those two functions work super well together, which is often not always the case, and that they work well with product. And that there is really a tight feedback loop between those three functions in order to take what you're hearing in the market, take what you're hearing on the Odyssey, and make sure that you actually build the ship that can get you to the next island. Because otherwise, if you have a great sales strategy, and, and I guess even going back to early on, I said interviewed for a strategy and operations role, like fundamentally, it's, we have amazing operators, right? I, I think our, our company has some of the sharpest people thinking about our strategy, our operations, our finances, all that sort of stuff. We've been very successful at fundraising, very successful at forecasting and board management, all that sort of stuff. If you do that really, and you don't sell really well, you don't have a business, right? If you sell really well, and you don't do those things really well, you have a really poorly run, but probably successful business. Ultimately, you have to do both things really well, but without the ability to actually get the boat to the next island, like you don't have much of a much of an odyssey ahead. And really, I think as sales leaders, as salespeople, as marketers, as go-to-market uh, leaders, what we have to be focused on is not just how do I close as many deals as possible? How do I hit the revenue target for this year? How do I hire enough reps so that I make my CFO happy? But long-term and medium-term, how do I make sure that we have the right mix of you know capabilities that is sufficiently differentiated in the market and delivers massive value for our clients so that I don't hit my number next quarter and the quarter after that, but next year and the year after that, because it gets harder, right? Speaking from experience, closing 1 million a year is hard. Closing 2 million a year is hard and you're doubling at that stage. Closing 4 million a year is harder. And then 8 million the year after that is harder. The growth expectations don't go away. The companies that IPO'd this year at $100 million plus ARR are still expected to grow 50, 60, 70% a year. Uh, And now they're publicly traded. So there's investor scrutiny and all that sort of stuff. For us, going from one to two to four to eight to 16, you learn along the way, it's really important to keep in mind the bigger picture. And make sure that sales, marketing, and product are all rowing at the same to the same drumbeat. Love it. That's awesome. So, what key advice should other sales and marketing leaders going through this journey take away? Oh man, that's a good question. I think part of it is it lies in what I said, which is you can't do it alone. All those things have to work well together. I think one one thing that I've learned, and I say this after I just mentioned the point about operators versus people who are closing business versus people who are focused on marketing is process becomes really important at a certain stage as you scale. Repeatability becomes really important. And in order to feel like your process is is highly repeatable, you really need to define what the key most important things are to measure in order to understand whether you're on or you're off track. And so the most straightforward thing is we closed a ton of business and our close rate is healthy and we generated a ton of leads. But as you look at those things and layer on additional things that you might want to look at, but the whole point of, the, of your podcast is long-term customer relationships. An example of this, and one of the, one of the people who I'm very grateful for who mentored me early on in, in my sales career is Mark Roberge, the CRO, the former CRO of HubSpot. One of the things that he's big on is... 
is compensating and measuring salespeople. Some percentage of their compensation is actually based on the long-term health of the deals that they sign. Mm. So you're not just saying, look, you get 10% or 8% or whatever it is of every deal you close. You get that, or you get a smaller percentage of that, but you also get 2% of the renewal rate after the first year or something Mm. like that. So it's not just surface level metrics around things like how many leads did we generate? How much business did we close? Did we hit our revenue number? But also, as I think about discrete client-driven sales stages, as I think about how my client's mindset changes as they move through the sales process, they might start out not knowing anything about the space, which is especially true for the market we're in. Then they might know some things, but they might not understand competitive differentiation or where you play or where your competitors play. And so you're doing education at that stage. And then they get to the point where they're like, how much money is this going to make me? Hopefully. Or how much is this going to cost me? You know, hopefully not. But ultimately they'll ask. And hopefully it's framed in the way of you're going to make more money and this is how much it's going to cost, but not always. And so as the client's mindset changes, as they move through that process, you want to have the ability to track those different client-driven milestones in the process and the, the healthiness of your funnel as it pertains to driving clients to that stage. If it's sales-driven, if you just say, I had a demo today, or I booked a call, or the client asked for, I guess the client asking for pricing is a client-driven process, but I gave them pricing, right? Like, then you have no idea how healthy your process is. Because mm-hmm. any rep can say, I gave them pricing, I'm super enthusiastic, they're ready to sign, let's put them in the commit for this quarter. But unless the client is actually in that mindset of trying to put together pricing, and you're working with them to present it to the decision maker and whatever executive stakeholders need to sign off, like fundamentally, you're missing the mark. So client driven in the process, and then having discrete moments in the client mindset that you can track against the performance of your funnel. And then going back to the way I started this rambling part of our conversation was alignment between marketing, sales and product. But that actually really helps with that. Because then you can go back to marketing and say, hey, look, a lot of the leads we're generating are great in terms of starting initial conversations, getting clients curious about our market, but they're actually not converting to really much level of intent around evaluating our product. Starting a lot of interesting conversations, a lot of good ones, the clients aren't actually saying, cool, so who do you compete with? Or how do I evaluate this versus the technology I already have, which are good intent signals. And then also for product, right? So then you can say, hey, turns out when we get to this stage of the process, these certain capabilities are really critical. And two of them we have, I think we can think about how to package them differently. This other one we don't have, and it's hurting us. And here's why. And it's not just hurting our ability to close business. It's also hurting our lead gen strategy. Because if we could talk about having this, you know, if we had these three things together, that's a big differentiator for us. Our competitors have one of these things or two of these things, or they have other things, but they don't have all three of these things. And I believe that if we have all three of these things, plus the things we already have, then this really helps us tell a a different story into the market. So I know that was a long-winded answer. I'll summarize by just saying, I think my advice is build a really client-driven process that establishes some milestones also around long-term client health. It's not just about the, you know, closing the deal. Also think, you know, critically about what those key moments or milestones of intent are on the client side in that process. And then track the things that you want to be able to track sort of your key business metrics as a sales leader, as a marketing leader against those things, and then align those things between marketing, sales, and product so that you can ensure uh, that you're all driving the right outcomes, not just more leads, not just more conversations, but uh, ultimately more closed business in the short, medium, and long term. Love it. That's awesome. 
Hey, thanks so much for joining, Dylan, and sharing all your wisdom, insights, and advice here. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for joining. Really appreciate the time, Brad.